I can't tell you right now who's going to win that quarterback competition. I can't do it. Even as a guy that played there, that has inside information with what's going on at Alabama, nobody knows. You can ask Nick Saban today, hey, who's your starting quarterback going to be? And he cannot tell you with confidence who that guy's going to be. Now, I can't tell you who's going to be the starter in Tuscaloosa, but what I can tell you is that we have ranked the top five quarterbacks in the SEC. We've also ranked the top five quarterbacks in the Pac-12, so we're going to have a good, healthy discussion about the pecking order that is the quarterback spot out west and in the southeast. I'm Greg McElroy. Thanks for coming to Always College Football. Please continue, like I've told you the last couple weeks, and you guys have responded beautifully. It really helps us out. If you could just take a couple seconds to rate, subscribe, or like. If you're on the podcast, give us a rating if you could. If you leave us a review, that'd be phenomenal as well. If you could subscribe, that'd be really helpful also. And then if you're on YouTube, just hit that thumbs up button. It goes a long way in helping us out. And we appreciate so much all of you that have come to us from all over the world to listen and talk college football on a relatively daily basis. I guess it's relative. We're not daily. We, we are during the season, or at least we have been, that's for sure. But right now, only a couple times a week, but man, I hope we're filling that void for you. We have a great show today. I already talked about the quarterback tiers, have a couple of great mailbag questions, including one about Jim Harbaugh. Are they built to beat the best teams in college football? I know they can beat Ohio State, but can they beat everybody else? We'll discuss that as well. But without much further ado, let's get into it. SEC quarterback rankings. One ranker that a lot of people have really looked forward to this offseason is our SEC quarterback ranker as of right now. Granted, it's early June. So this is kind of post-spring, early summer. A lot can change. A lot of quarterback battles in the SEC are still underway. So it's almost difficult to put together a a whole list, a complete list, without leaving out some guys that might very well find their way into the top five by the end of the season. There are quarterback battles all throughout the league. You got one at Ole Miss. You got one at Georgia, technically. You got one at Florida. You got one at Alabama. You got one technically at Tennessee. So there's a lot of quarterback battles that are still raging on. So this will be something that we will reevaluate as we get a little closer to fall camp and as we get a little closer to the season. But as of right now, as of where we're at today in early June, here's how we see it. I think the league top to bottom at quarterback is actually quite good. I said earlier last week that the Big Ten has the highest upside amongst the quarterbacks that might be stepping into starting spots. Guys like Drew Aller at Penn State that might very well by season's end be a complete game changer but at this point, still, even though we're optimistic, even though we're bullish, still need to see a little bit more in real live action to be convinced that he can be a game-changing quarterback for the Nittany Lions. Similar things can be said about the SEC quarterback pool in and of itself. I have a lot of faith in Jackson Dart and Spencer Sanders. I don't know who it's going to be, but ultimately, I think Ole Miss's quarterback situation's in great hands. So... You got to take some of this with a bit of a grain of salt as some of these competitions are still going on. But let's start at the top, shall we? The best quarterback returning in the SEC to me is Jaden Daniels at LSU. 
Now, you look at what he did last year. Can you tell me a player, maybe in the SEC, maybe in all of college football, maybe you want to take it in the Power Five, however you want to explain it, tell me a player that looked more comfortable in their final game of the season than the first game of the season than Jaden Daniels. And think about the progression that was made when he played against Florida State to where we saw him in the bowl game, where he was completely lights out. Now, you can take into account the final two games of the, quote, regular season. You look at how he played against AM, You look at how he played in the SEC championship game in the first half. Second half was great. But either way, this was a player that got more and more comfortable as the season went along. And then you think about, too, what he accomplished previously at Arizona State. This is a guy that has 9,000 yards career throwing the football. He also could be a guy this year that might have 1,000 on the ground, might have 3,000 through the year, and returns an excellent supporting cast. Offensive line should be, if not the best in the SEC, but arguably the best. Wide receivers, if not the best in the SEC, arguably the best. You look across the board, man, he's got everything that you could want. And now another year in the system. Mike Denbrock, the quarterback coach, offensive coordinator. Brian Kelly, who's very hands-on with how they go about tutoring that position. You saw signs of growth throughout the season last year, and you only can assume that that growth is going to increase exponentially now that he's had an entire offseason as the number one guy. Jaden Daniels is my number one guy coming into the fall of 2023 for the SEC quarterbacks. At number two, but very, very close. The gap between these two is remarkably small. The one difference between quarterback one, Jaden Daniels, and quarterback two and Will Rogers is that there is a transition from one system to another. Jaden Daniels, there's consistency from where he was last year to where he's going to be this year. With Will Rogers, albeit one of the most accomplished players in school history statistically, multiple seasons now with 35 touchdown passes and fewer than 10 interceptions. But he did so in an air raid offense. Now, I'm not taking anything away from him. But the question I have, is Will Rogers a system quarterback? I don't think he is. That's why I have him at number two. I really believe that he's going to prove this year that you can put him into a more balanced attack that's going to rely a little bit more off play action. That's going to rely a little bit more off bootleg action. And you think about what he did last year on passes that traveled 10 yards or more downfield, which by the way, was just a quarter of his attempts last year. He completed over 50% of those passes. So this is a guy that can push the ball down the field. He just hasn't had to do it as often as some of the other guys on the list and as often as some of the other guys in college football. But you bring in Kevin Barbe from Appalachian State, they're going to be a stretch zone team that's going to try to run the football. So he's going to marry up that run game with some play action passing. I think he's going to get some favorable looks in the secondary as a result. And he has shown over the course of his career, a guy that is extremely accurate, a guy that is willing to stand in there and take some shots. And he's already thrown for over 10,000 yards in his career, 82 touchdowns. He's already one of the most accomplished players in Southeastern Conference history and still has plenty of time left to increase those numbers, especially now with the semblance of a run game that he's going to have to lean on. Will Rogers comes in at number two. Those two felt pretty easy to me. I'm not sure everyone, I'm not sure it's unanimous across the board what one and two are. Maybe you reverse those. Maybe you have a couple other guys that might be in the mix, but that's how I see it right now. And to be honest with you, it's not that close. At number three, 
KJ Jefferson at Arkansas. Now, this one's a little bit more based on upside. Also, a year of transition. Kendall Browse no longer there. In comes Dan Enos from Maryland. He's done a good job in the past in the SEC, is familiar, has been at Arkansas, has been at Alabama, spent some time at Miami. He's been kind of around all over the place, but he's going to implement an RPO style of attack, and Dan Enos understands the quarterback position really, really well. Part of KJ Jefferson's issues are the inconsistencies. When he's at his best, there are few players in college football that do it as well as he does. The problem is there are examples where he's not at his best. It might even be from quarter to quarter. You think about how well he played against Texas A&M last year in the first half of that football game. And then he tries to score a touchdown, would have essentially put the game on ice, reaches the ball out, it gets knocked away, fumble, Texas A&M takes it to the house. Next thing you know, he's a completely different player. He's been streaky at times in his career. Even two years ago, first game of the year, I believe it was against Rice, really shaky in the first half, great in the second half. You look at him against... Uh, Liberty this past year. I know he was banged up. There was questions as to whether or not he should have even played the game. He missed the next game against LSU, but he just wasn't very consistent with his accuracy. This is a very streaky player, but with tremendous upside. 6'3", 240 pounds, can be dynamic, not just in the pass game, but also in the run game as well. 20 passing touchdowns, makes good decisions too. Doesn't take a lot of unnecessary risk. Just five interceptions last year. And he added 15 scores on the ground. He's going to continue to complement that run game with Rocket Sanders. And you would anticipate what I think is going to be a pretty good group of wide receivers, an excellent transfer tight end from North Texas. This passing attack might be pretty good. It's just about how consistent will he be? I can't have the roller coasters. He's been a roller coaster at times the last couple of years. I'm hoping so much that we get the best of what KJ Jefferson can offer on a week-to-week basis. Because if we get that, he could find himself at the top spot in the SEC. Let's go next to number four, a guy who I'm excited about, but also people have a tendency to forget what happened in the first nine games of the season last year. Spencer Rattler, not a great year if you take into account the first nine, 10 games. Now, you take into account the last three, the guy's been cooking with gas. And we know that there was a bit of an adjustment period for him moving from Lincoln Riley's offense at Oklahoma to what they did last year under Marcus Satterfield. They used a lot of verbiage, a lot of terminology, long play calls. Well, in steps Dowell Logans. It's going to be a little bit more similar to what Arkansas did last year. That's where Dowell Logans was. He now moves over. It's going to be quicker. It's going to be tempo. It's going to be simplified play calling that will take a little bit off the shoulders of Spencer Rattler, which will allow him to play more instinctively and allow him to regain the confidence that he had at one point three years ago when he was unanimously in the offseason heading into 21, maybe the best player in college football. We remember, too, how he finished, okay? How he finished the season. Everyone wants to talk about the Tennessee performance. Also played pretty well, obviously, against Clemson and then finished off the season in fine form against Notre Dame. That's 13 touchdowns in his final five games, including six against Tennessee. He finished with a flurry. He also has an excellent wide receiver to rely on in Juice Wells, who might very well be as good as anybody in the conference at wide receiver. As your dependable number one guy, he might take the top spot, or at least he's in the mix amongst the best in the league. Might not be Malik Neighbors at LSU, but he's really close. And I think with another year in developing a rapport with Spencer Rattler, that tandem could accelerate 
towards the top. But I'm bullish on Spencer Rattler. I just want to see him stretch it out over the course of a 12 or 13 game season as opposed to a four or five game season like he did down the stretch last year. And in at number five. Now, if this guy were always healthy, the conversation about him might be a little different. Devin Leary from Kentucky, formerly of NC State. Now, can he stay healthy? That's the big question. Broke his leg in 2020. Tore his pec last year. Both cut his season a little bit short. But if you look at the year in 2021 when he was a full-time starter, some of the things he was able to pull off. He set the school record for touchdown passes. Remember, that's the same school that Philip Rivers came from. 35 touchdown passes, Philip Rivers' best year, 34. He also had thrown 20, 228 passes without an interception. So not only is he able to fit the ball to tight windows, and he makes good decisions. He's not putting the ball in harm's way. He will take some risks without question, but he knows what he can get away with. He knows what he can't get away with. That was the longest streak in the FBS that season. He did throw a pick at the end of the half on a Hail Mary against Florida State. So that streak, if not for a Hail Mary, would have continued on. Devin Leary is the real deal. He just has to stay healthy. And last year, the concern for me with Kentucky was the offensive line. The offensive line was at times a turnstile. But in the past, Kentucky has had a terrific offensive line. In comes Liam Cohen. He's back after a year with the Los Angeles Rams. He's back at Kentucky. Hopefully, he can kind of reintegrate some of those concepts they used successfully two years ago when he was the OC and Will Levis had a tremendous year. But Devin Leary, based on availability, is of concern. But if he is out there, the ability is unquestioned. He rounds out the top five. But let's talk about some of the other guys that might possibly join the list here as we move forward into fall camp and ultimately into the season. A lot of people are very bullish on Joe Milton. Understandably so. I called the game in the Orange Bowl against Clemson. He looked insanely comfortable. And we know his physical arm talent is unlike that of pretty much anybody in college football. The guy's got the biggest arm in the country. There's no doubt about that. But as a result of that big arm, there are a lot of long foul balls. Now, he hasn't completely separated. I'm just not 100% certain that he's going to be the starter, but let's call it what it is. He's going to be the starter. And he looked really, really good. Now, can he eliminate some of those overthrows? Can he be more consistent when pushing the ball down the field? Look, he could throw it 80 yards in the air. But not every deep ball needs to travel 80 yards because he's just got to throw it 60 to allow his receiver to run underneath it. That's the big adjustment for him. He's shown improvement. He's shown growth from where he was two years ago in 2021 when he started the season as the starting quarterback. Remember, he was the starter ahead of Hendon Hooker. Hendon Hooker got into the game against Pitt because Joe Milton rolled his ankle and was unable to return that day. But this is a guy that has great potential. He just has to learn how to harness that potential and be mindful by not throwing a 100-mile-an-hour fastball on every single throw. He could find his way onto the list very, very quickly. Let's also talk about the Spencer Sanders-Jackson Dart competition. Jackson Dart leaving the spring was the guy. But Spencer Sanders was limited most of the spring because of the shoulder injury that he had coming off of the 2022 season. This is something that I expect to go all the way until the beginning of fall camp. I wouldn't even be that surprised if both players started games. That's what happened at times the last couple of years. 
Both players have started games for multiple teams, by the way. Lane Kiffin's used and utilized that approach in the past as well. Wouldn't be shocked if Spencer Sanders got a start. Wouldn't be shocked if Jackson Dark got a start. May the best man win. And then week three, you figure out exactly which way you're going to go from there. Talking about a guy now, we know what Jackson Dart did last year. He's got a great run game. He just got an unbelievable addition in Zakari Franklin from UTSA. They've done a really good job in the portal. Press Corn, the kid from Memphis at tight end, is another difference maker as well. This offense has a chance to be elite. They do. They have a chance to be elite. Who's the quarterback going to be? But Spencer Sanders, just think back over his career. 85 career touchdowns. This guy's played a lot of football. He also started a game in the New Year's Six. So he's seen the very best in college football and has been up to the challenge. Now, was a little banged up last year. Didn't have a great year. Gets a fresh start at Ole Miss. Will he ultimately close the gap? And will he ultimately go beyond what Jackson Dart is capable of doing? We'll find out. But that's a fascinating competition. Arguably the most competitive quarterback competition in the entire country. Carson Beck at Georgia. I'm as excited as you are. I thought he looked great in the spring game. Showed poise, shows accuracy, showed the ability to make the right decision. And this was a spring game format that wasn't exactly set up to allow the offense to thrive. They're bringing pressures. They're mixing coverages. It wasn't vanilla against vanilla. Carson Beck had to play, read, and react. And he did so beautifully. He's a fourth-year player, so he knows the system inside and out. And they also have an excellent receiver core for him to lean on with two notable additions in the transfer portal in Rara Thomas and with Dominic Lovett, who came down from Missouri. So very excited about what Carson Beck might be, but at this point can't quite crack the top five. How about AJ Swan at Vandy? Nobody wants to talk about Vandy. Nobody knows what Vandy has. And yes, last year, AJ Swan was a true freshman. But given where things went, this is a guy that has to throw guys open because Vandy's receivers not going to get ridiculous separation like some of the aforementioned guys. He's going to have to fit it into tight windows, and he did so very, very frequently last year. We're talking about a guy last year in the FBS. He was the only true freshman to drop back at least 200 times and throw fewer than seven interceptions. Pretty good starting point for A.J. Swan. He'll be the guy from day one. Doesn't quite crack the top five, but a guy to keep an eye on there for Vandy. He could pull an upset this year if Vandy continues to progress. Let's go to finally before we get out of the SEC discussion, let's talk quickly about the Bama quarterback situation. We've documented it for a while, okay? We've been watching it. We've broken it down. We talked about Jalen Milrow. We talked about Ty Simpson. When Tyler Buckner decided to transfer down from Notre Dame, we talked about that as well. I can't tell you right now who's going to win that quarterback competition. I can't do it. Even as a guy that played there, that has inside information with what's going on at Alabama, nobody knows. You can ask Nick Saban today, hey, who's your starting quarterback going to be? And he cannot tell you with confidence who that guy's going to be. It's going to play itself out over the course of summer, and it's going to play itself out over the course of fall camp. And it wouldn't be the first time that it played itself out into the season. Remember, back in 2016, Blake Barnett got the opening season start. Jalen Hurts ultimately took over in that opening season start against SC, and the rest was history. We've also seen situations in 2015 where Jacob Coker got the opening season start, had a couple pretty decent games, not bad. Then Cooper Bateman ultimately got the start in week four against Ole Miss. So they have gone with a bit of a quarterback derby in the first few weeks of the season to try to figure out who that guy is going to be. Back in 2011, Phillip Sims 
and AJ McCarron went back and forth. Back in 2017, Jalen was obviously the established starter, but in the national championship game, they went with Tua at halftime, of course. So this is not something that might be decided when the first game gets underway. But in week two, when Texas comes to town, I would anticipate Alabama having a solidified starter at that point. Here's what I would say in closing when it comes to the Alabama quarterback situation. When was the last time the Alabama quarterback position was a significant liability? Much can be said about something similar at Ohio State. When was the last time you were truly, truly bothered by the productivity or lack thereof of the quarterback spot at Alabama? It's been a long, long, long time. So I would just proceed with caution when you start to declare Alabama's quarterback situation a, quote, problem. I think they're going to be fine, especially knowing the type of offense they're going to implement. Game manager is all that is expected, especially with a run-first approach with Tommy Reese coming down from Notre Dame. The emphasis is going to be on the line of scrimmage. The emphasis is going to be on running the football. The emphasis is going to be on shrinking the game and emphasizing physical presence at the line of scrimmage. Whatever quarterback makes the best decisions and whatever quarterback distributes the ball accordingly will be in a pretty good position to be successful. So those are a bunch of different quarterbacks. When you're looking at the SEC, that could be very interchangeable. When you look at the Big Ten, it's a pretty clear pecking order. It really is. I mean, J.J. McCarthy, we kind of know that he's probably going to be number one. We look kind of down the list. I think the Big Ten's pecking order is a little bit more predictable. The SEC, I just listed off, gosh, what, 10 guys? Right now, number one is Jaden Daniels from LSU. But it would not surprise any of us if Spencer Sanders elevates the top spot. It wouldn't surprise me if Jackson Dart elevates like crazy. It wouldn't surprise me if Carson Beck goes out there and has a Heisman Trophy type of run because he's got a great supporting cast and is very, very efficient. And it certainly wouldn't surprise me if Spencer Rattler returns to form and elevates the top spot in the league. I think this is the most interchangeable league in the 10 that we've laid out so far. So it's going to be something that we probably continue to update, not just throughout the summer, but probably throughout the season as well. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. Shifting out west into a league that is remarkably deep at the quarterback spot. 
This is probably the best collection of quarterbacks that the Pac-12 has had in a really long time. Because not only do they have promise and super elite players at the top, they also have guys that might very well find their way into the conversation because they have kind of regained their footing. I'll explain here in just a little bit. But why would I waste any time when anointing the top spot in the Pac-12? It's Caleb Williams, USC Heisman Trophy winner. Do we really need to go into the depths of why he's the best? I mean, do I, I don't feel like anybody that's listening to this show needs me to explain to them why Caleb Williams is super elite. So can we just put him at one, save some time, move on to number two? Are we all good there? If you want a more complete Caleb Williams breakdown, we can do so at another day. But let's just be brief. The guy's an absolute machine. So he's unbelievable. Top prospect in all of college football. Guy's incredible. If I could start a team this year with anyone, it'd be him. Say no more. Let's move on to number two where it gets a little bit more interesting. I'm going with Michael Penix. Now, this is a little bit... uh, This is probably up for debate amongst many because two through four, I think there might be a bunch of different guys that would be in order. You ask 10 different people, they might have seven or eight different orders two through four in the Pac-12. But for me, I'm going Michael Penix. You look at what he did last year. Now, think about leading the nation and passing for as long as he did. The productivity, 4,600 yards, 31 touchdowns. I mean, all the numbers are off the charts. He has huge arm talent, huge arm talent. Now, on occasion, is there a big miss? Yeah, there's a big miss in there every once in a while. On occasion, is there a bad decision? Sure, to be expected. But you kind of complete the player with his mobility. You complete the player with his downfield accuracy. His arm strength is off the charts good as well. And I do think another year in the system is only going to allow him to grow even more. Ryan Grubb is OC. Kalen DeBoer his head coach. These are two unbelievable football minds. I know looking at how he is likely going to progress this spring... There are few coaches in college football that are better equipped to get him to where he wants to go here in what should be his final year in Seattle. I think Michael Penix is poised for a massive season. It's a big reason why I think Washington is a sleeper dark horse in the college football playoff race. Let's go to number three. Maybe a little bit more surprising here, especially knowing that Cam Rising is coming off of an injury. You look at the production, 6,500 yards over the past couple of years, Obviously, the guy just finds a way to win. He just finds a way to get the job done. Back-to-back Pac-12 championships. And what I love most, like we know he's pretty accurate. We know he knows how to get rid of the football. We know he knows how to anticipate. We know he's got that savvy grit when it comes to playing the position. But I think the warrior mentality occasionally can be used against you. It's not something that I absolutely love at the quarterback spot, but in this case, I do. I think it's synonymous with the culture that's been created at Utah. And I don't think there's a better leader in the country for Utah's program than Cam Rising. Talking about a guy that's willing to lower his shoulder and run guys over if he has to have it. And that's, I think, massive. Now, you look at what's going to be coming up this season for Utah. I love their team. I think they're really good. Now, I think the whole Pac-12 as a whole is really, really good. But Cam Rising, as far as toughness, leadership, accuracy, athleticism, do it all, make everyone else around you better, he comes in at number three. At number four, because of the transition, I have Bo Nix 
of Oregon in at number four. Now, Kelly Dillingham, Kenny Dillingham is now the head coach at Arizona State. He was formerly the offensive coordinator of the Oregon Ducks. Coordinator change is a big question mark. I mean, will Bo Nix continue to play at a really high level? Last year, he was off the charts. His first couple of years in school, not quite as efficient. Now, you look at what he did. 29 passing touchdowns, 14 rushing touchdowns last year, accumulated over 4,000 all-purpose yards. He's perfectly equipped to run the offense that's going to be used there in Eugene, but we have at times seen some dips and some elevated levels of production. There's been a little bit of inconsistency. Now, I think that inconsistency is behind him. I really believe that. The Auburn Bo Nix is not the Oregon Bo Nix. Two very different players. He's more confident, and I thought he looked really comfortable last year, went healthy, but did get a little banged up towards the end. I love Bo Nix. I love all four of the top four quarterbacks in the Pac-12. So I think, look, two through four, you want to have Bo Nix two. You want to have Michael Penix four. I got no problem with that whatsoever. I happen to think, though, with what Penix does for his team, with what Cam Risen means to his team, and what Bo Nix means to his team, I have Penix, Rising, Nix. At number five, this is where it gets a little bit more dramatic. I'm not sure a lot of people will agree with me on this, but I called his bowl game. I watched his tape. I think this guy's got a real, real exciting and potentially special season coming up here in 2023. I'm going with Cam Ward at Washington State. Now, obviously, there were some ridiculous expectations coming into the season last year. Gets the transfer coming up, one of the big hitters in the NIL world. He ends up at Washington State. His offensive coordinator is now down as the head coach at North Texas. So Eric Morris is gone. But if you look at what this young man did in the spring, according to everybody that watched him day in, day out, the, I guess, growth has been, quote, not my word, quote, tremendous. And you think about what he did last year. I mean, talking about 3,000 yards passing, 23 touchdowns, despite just four and a half, six and a half yards in attempts. So not crazy downfield throws. But remember, it was more of an air raid style system. So you're going to have a lot of dinks and dunks. You're going to have a lot of things underneath. But this is a guy that has great mobility, great athleticism, can extend plays, and I think will only get more comfortable. The leap from the FCS to the Power Five is a real one. Uh, I, I don't care what anyone says. That's a real leap. That's a difficult leap to make. So yes, there have been examples of guys that have gone from FCS to FBS and it's been a seamless transition. Bailey Zappi comes to mind. Went from Houston Baptist to Western Kentucky, lit the world on fire. But Western Kentucky's schedule is a little different from that of what Cam Ward had to play last year. I think Cam Ward right now is in a position to really leap up the board here in 2023. A lot of people might have Shador Sanders in as the number five. I don't. I have him on the upside list right now because of why. I just talked about the FCS to power five jump and some of the challenges that came with it for Cam Ward. Now, Cam Ward's got a year under his belt. Cam Ward is a really talented guy. Shador Sanders is too, but there is a learning curve there. And while he lit it up in the spring, I watched that Colorado spring game. I looked at the personnel that he was going against defensively. To be honest with you, I'm not sure that defense was going to stop much of anything that day. You look at the guys that were rushing the passer. Yeah, Utah's guys don't look like that. All right. The guys that'll be breathing fire at Shador Sanders in a live game situation will be an uptick significantly against the competition that he's played for the last couple of years. You cannot deny, though, some of the success that he's had 
at the college level already to this point. 70 touchdowns in two seasons. Obviously ran for another nine. So I think he's, if there's anyone that's going to make this leap from the FCS to the FBS or to the FCS to the Power Five, it's Shador Sanders that can do it. But at this point, I'm just going to hold tight. Don't have him in the top five right now, but he's a guy that would be at the top of my list as far as a guy that I would elevate if he can come out of the gates as well as he played in the spring game. He was great in the spring game. If he can carry over that throughout the summer into fall camp and then ultimately into the fall, he could be in a really, really good position to be at the top or near the top in the top five at least of the Pac-12 quarterback derby. Let's go next to Jaden Delora at Arizona. Gunslinger mentality, takes a lot of risks, is a little bit careless with the football from time to time, kind of carries it around every once in a while like a loaf of bread. But Jed Fish is a quarterback guy. He's played the position. He understands the position. He's coached the position for a really long time in the NFL and in college. I think he's going to coach out some of the recklessness that Jaden Delora has. But with that recklessness also comes a unique playmaking ability that he put on display multiple times last year. I think growth is to be expected with Jaden Delora. And then finally, DJ Uwe Angalale. Now, his, he's not yet officially the starting quarterback, but I do believe that here in the near term, he's probably going to be anointed as such. Let's just remember who DJ Uwe Angalale was back in 2020. The two starts that he made in the ACC for Clemson against both Boston College and against Notre Dame, the guy was really, really good. Now, he lost his way a little bit, lost some of the confidence there in 2021, bounced back early in 2022, threw for 10 touchdowns in his first four games. That was more than he had in the entire 2021 season. And then things came off a little bit towards the end. Didn't play quite as well, was ultimately replaced by Kate Klubnik. But now DJ Uyunglele gets a fresh start. And he gets a fresh start in an offense that's not going to put so much on his shoulders. It's going to be an offense that wants to run the football, control the line of scrimmage, heavy play action. And one thing DJ Uyunglele can do is he can push the ball down the field off play action. So I think it is a perfect spot for him to end up. He's not going to be operating in the spotlight. He's not going to have people asking him a million questions. He's not going to have to do a bunch of ESPN and Fox interviews. He'll have to do some, but not as many as he did at Clemson. That's for sure. There's less pressure. There's lower expectations. And now he gets a new lease on life at Oregon State. So I think he's poised to have an excellent 2023 season. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As always, we so appreciate all the different questions that you've submitted to us. We have so many coming in daily from you, the listener. Hey, man, what do you think of this? Hey, man, what do you think of that? What about this team? How about this portal edition? We so have appreciated all the different things you've sent our way, and we will continue to get them into the show as quickly as humanly possible. But today, we're going to go with a lawyer, loyal listener shout out. We have gotten several emails from these two individuals throughout the course of the last few months. So please continue, guys, submitting questions to alwayscollegefootball at gmail.com or alwayscfb on both Instagram and on Twitter. Coops, where are we going? All right. First one from the loyal listener, John from Boulder. His question is, as a former player, do kickoff times matter? Is there such a thing for players as too early or too late of a start time? 
What about player routines and regularity of training and habits? Do players care? Players don't care, but it can have an effect on your internal clock. As a player, when toe meets leather, we're going, right? And coaches can kind of adjust and adapt and tweak the practice regimen. So if you have, a, for instance, a really late game, let's say you're an East Coast team and you're playing at USC and it's a 10.30 kickoff Eastern time, then coaches might push back some practices in fall camp a little later on to help you get acclimated with the later kick time. If you have a really early game, say for instance, year USC, you're playing big noon kickoff at Ohio State. Well, guess what? That's a that's a nine o'clock Pacific time kick. Now you can travel in a day early. For instance, you got a Saturday game. You're going more than two time zones. You travel in on Thursday for that Saturday game to give yourself 24 hours to get your legs back and to get more comfortable. But players don't care. Here's the problem though, is more so than anything else, it's really about the recovery. The recovery is something that is a little bit more difficult. So for instance, we'll use Auburn as an example. Auburn in week two is traveling out to Cal and they're playing at 930, uh, 9.30 Central Time. Now that game will be played, probably finish around what? One o'clock Central Time or so. You get showered, you get cleaned up, you fly back, you land on the planes roughly nine o'clock 10 o'clock in the morning. You're going basically an entire night without good rest. That's going to carry over into Sunday, ultimately carry over into Monday. And thank goodness for Auburn, they have a, a very winnable game the following week against Samford. But if they were playing, say, Arkansas the following Saturday, that could have a bit of a hangover effect. So I've always felt like traveling from west to east is far more difficult, but it's kind of up to each individual. Traveling west to east takes a lot longer for me to get more comfortable, but traveling from east to west isn't something that has really held me back as a player back in the day. And I don't think it's going to hold back 18 to 22 year olds because these guys are staying up to all hours of the night anyways. All right. Fair enough. Next one, loyal listener, Jim in Idaho. He asks, do you feel like Harbaugh built Michigan to beat Ohio State, but that's the only elite team that they can beat? In the last two years, they are 2-3 and three versus other top 25 opponents, including 0-2 in the CFP. Okay, so they lost to Georgia two years ago, one of the best teams we've ever seen, right? I don't think there's any shame in losing to Georgia in 2021. There's no shame in that. I mean, you can say, well, what? And then you look last year against TCU. I mean, they had it on their racket, man. I mean, they completely wet the bed. So they, they played terrible on defense. They got gassed. And then it became a track meet. And the track meets, it was going to favor TCU. But there were a million different examples where Michigan just completely abandoned who they were. I mean, the first drive of the game, it's like, dude, run the ball. You're doing a trick play from the five-yard line. What are we doing? Like, come on, man, run the ball. That's who you are. So I think there have been times in big games they've gotten a little cute. Whereas against Ohio State, even though you get to a bit of a deficit early last year, they stuck to the plan. They stayed patient. They continued to commit to the run game. And then inevitably, that run game got going. So no, I think Michigan is built to beat anyone because they emphasize the line of scrimmage. They have two very twitchy guys on the perimeter. They have a quarterback that's going to likely come into his own here in 2023. They still have a remarkably dynamic one-two punch at running back. I think their weapons at wide receiver are very underappreciated. And the offensive line, albeit 
several dismissals, several departures, guys that are now playing in the NFL. But look at how they added to the portal. Defensively, they're going to be good at all three levels. They've always been good at all three levels, and I would expect that to continue here in 2023. So yes, is the biggest game on the schedule for Michigan, is it Ohio State? Absolutely. But does that mean that their plan and their makeup doesn't translate to success against other top teams? I completely disagree with that sentiment. And it's no disrespect. I can understand why the question's been asked. But I think if you give Michigan a chance to play against USC, you give Michigan a chance to play against Alabama, you give Michigan a chance to play against Clemson, I think they'd have success. Would they ultimately win the game? I don't know. But I think that they would have some success. So I think their identity is translatable to several different outcomes. Now, they have the recipe obviously for Ohio State. But I think if you can beat Ohio State, you can beat just about anybody in college football. But they will have to potentially get into a bit of a shootout if their defense isn't playing as well as they normally do from week to week. Thanks for being with us. Like I told you guys at the beginning, it goes a long way in helping us out. You guys have really responded, kind of asked you last week, haven't really pushed it because it hasn't been that big a deal, but we're rounding out year one and we really want to know what you think. So if you could leave a review, if you're on podcast, if you're on Apple podcast, leave us a review. And if you could also leave us a rating, if you're on Spotify, if you're on Apple podcast, wherever you get your podcast, leave us a rating. That'd be really, really helpful. And then continue to please tell your friends about what we're talking about here at Always College Football. We're having a blast. We're filling that void. It's June and yet we are deep in the college football conversation. So continue to check in with us. If you could subscribe as well, you'll continue to get our podcast or you'll get our videos on the YouTube page for ESPN every single week. So we so appreciate all the interaction. Continue to send in your questions, alwayscollegefootball at gmail.com. Continue to interact with us on Twitter or on Instagram. You can follow us there at Always. CFB. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's Always College Football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.